Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Francisco L. Borges and the Melville Charitable Trust. This is where we live from Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Catherine Shen. It's all about transit, roads, and traffic infrastructure today. Connecticut Department of Transportation Commissioner Garrett Ucalito is here with me in the studio to answer our questions and yours about transportation around the state. From pedestrian safety to lowering the blood alcohol limit, we'll hear about his office's efforts to create safer roadways in our state. With transit-oriented development and getting more EVs or electric vehicles on the road, green energy remains part of the larger conversation when it comes to Connecticut transportation. And we want to hear from you and learn how you like to see roads improve where you live. Join the conversation, 888-720-9677. That's 888-720-WNPR. Or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. Commissioner, welcome to the show today. Thank you for having me. Uh, getting right to your priorities as commissioner, you know, you've been a strong advocate about lowering the blood alcohol limit. Can you talk about the reason about around this and how that could change? Yeah, so Connecticut has historically had one of the higher uh, rates of fatalities tied to alcohol impairment. Uh, so what we've seen be successful across the world and in our country in Utah was uh, lowering the blood alcohol content from 0.08 down to 0.05. In Utah, it caused a significant reduction in crashes and fatals caused by um, alcohol impairment. Uh, in Europe, it's taken very seriously. And it's not intended to actually force people to stop drinking. What it's intended to do is raise the awareness of the seriousness of getting behind the wheel if you're impaired. Um, Utah actually saw more people going out to dinner, going out to get drinks. They saw sales taxes from uh, social activities increase as soon as they put that into effect. And is is this something that came as a surprise or is it part of the process? I know you mentioned, you know, you're seeing more fatalities from this. So can you tell us about that thought process? So this has been an effort. Uh, the National Transportation Safety Board has been pushing for this for mm, close to 10 years now. Um, I started to get involved in it in my previous job. Um, but we have seen alcohol-impaired deaths in Connecticut remain stubbornly high. Um, so, you know, this time around, uh, this legislative session, we thought, let's try and raise this topic as an issue of discussion. We need to have this discussion, raise awareness for people. You know, it's not okay um, to have multiple drinks and get behind the wheel. And if it were to be lowered, how, how much lower would it be? So um, right now, the legal limit is 0.08. Um, our recommendation is 0.05, which is what Utah has done. Um, that is that at that point at 0.05, everyone is essentially impaired at some level. Um, it's scientifically proven that you are impaired at 0.05. And on top of that, too, you've also focused a lot on speed safety programs and installing more speed cameras. And we've had those conversations on the show as well. So, other than alerting drivers. How would speed, something like speed cameras enforce the speed limit? Are we talking about the ones that could issue tickets? Are you talking about more manpower? You know, what are we thinking here? Yeah, so um, we have rolled out in Connecticut. There's only 
Um, there's automated work zone speed cameras. Um, we have a pilot for one year. Um, we launched it on April 10th. Um, we, we have it through the end of this calendar year. And what it essentially will do is if you're speeding through a work zone on our roadways, 15 miles per hour or greater uh, over the speed limit, um, you'll get first you'll get a warning in the mail. Uh, your second offense will be $75 and your third offense will be $150. And there's signage out there in advance of that work zone. And the intent is not to actually raise any revenue. The intent is to get people um, to slow down as they're approaching those work zones because those people uh, working on the side of the road, doing construction, con- inspecting the construction jobs, uh, repairing the guide rails, um, they are extremely vulnerable. Their backs are to the traffic at times. Um, so we, uh, the intent is really to protect them as much as possible. And is this something that, are you seeing any changes or are you hearing from the drivers or people? You know, what are you hearing from, from those on the road? So um, we know from the other states that have done it, they generally will see up to a 50% reduction in speeding um, through work zones. Um, you know, ours has been in effect for only a couple weeks. Um, we're still gathering the data uh, from each location. And what we did was we went out and took baseline speeds um, at each location before we turned on the cameras uh, so we can compare that. And anecdotally, we are seeing that speeding through those work zones is down. Um, I think this data will help us prove the efficacy of that tool. And because we have been talking about this so frequently for good reason recently, and, and I know there's been a lot of conversation, too, about raising awareness around reducing roadway fatalities, as you just mentioned. And I think Connecticut's Department of Transportation is one of 80 groups that are committed to taking action to reduce those serious injuries and deaths on the roadways. Can you talk about, you know, what does this look like? What does it encompass? You know, we talked about speed cameras and all these, you know, infrastructure things, but are there other things that you're doing to help with this? Yeah, so um, we have um, great partners in the Connecticut legislature. Uh, Representative Roland Lamar, Senator Christine Cohen have been really uh, good partners with us to try and address safety on our roads. And it's it's what's called a safe systems approach. It's looking at all aspects of the transportation system. It's not just about enforcement. It's also about changing the infrastructure, um, making our roadways safer for drivers, for bikers, for pedestrians. Uh, but we know that the infrastructure changes take a long time. Um, it's not just going out and saying, I want to uh, you know, change the curb line there. And you have to get permits. You have to enter into negotiations with people who you want to take some of their easement onto their property. Uh, so it's that. It's education. Um, it's also looking at uh, the individuals who don't have access to the transportation system today. So how can we get them to where they need to go in as safe a way as possible. And I think on a related note, too, we've also been having a lot of conversations about more aggressive driving. A driver seems to, there's been an increase really throughout the nation and the state. So are there anything specific that you're doing to help address that? So, you know, the DOT, we are, um, we maintain the infrastructure we receive fund, federal funds for education and awareness. Uh, we don't have enforcement powers. We have great partners with the Connecticut State Police. Um, but we did see, I think, anyone who drives on our roads, anyone who walks on our roads or bikes on our roads has seen more aggressive driving. Uh, and that's where law enforcement is um, stepping up. Um, we saw a decrease in law enforcement activity in 2020 and 2021. Uh, law enforcement, uh, Connecticut State Police, they are increasing the number of troopers in their classes. 
Um, so they're able to do more law enforcement and because that's where you can stop the aggressive driving uh, and you can also stop the impaired driving and drug driving. And so we had a question from Kate on Twitter who says, you know, DOT currently does not have a plan to replace much needed revenue in the special transportation fund, which will leave us in a very precarious situation starting in 2026. What does Garrett think about RUC, which is road use charges, as a possible solution in Connecticut? So our transportation system historically has been rooted in the concept of the user pays to use the system. Um, that's where the gas tax originally initiated, uh, originated from, um, paying for your license and for your motor vehicle registration. Um, you know, in Connecticut, um, we have uh, begun to, over the past several years, put more general sales tax. Anytime you go purchase anything in the state, a portion of that goes into our special transportation fund. But as we look at the revenue numbers coming in that were just released yesterday, um, by the Office of Policy and Management and the legislature, uh, gasoline tax and diesel tax and oil companies' taxes are all declining over the next several years as we begin to transition away from uh, uh, petroleum products to fuel our transportation system. So we do need to look at that type of user pay model. The whole rest of the country is piloting this technology. The federal government is paying states and organizations to pilot uh, a system that will charge you based on how far you travel. Um, and there's ways you can make that equitable. You can build in uh, lower income reduced rates, which you can't do with the gas tax today. So it's a much more equitable way to help pay for the transportation system. And uh, building up on the conversation we just had earlier about aggressive driving, we got a comment from Melissa on Facebook who says, I've had multiple episodes recently of people passing in between lanes on both routes 91 and 15, as well as reckless driving drivers weaving and speeding. So between that and distracted drivers and wrong way drivers, our roads are not safe. There needs to be cameras everywhere. It's out of control. We need major changes now. So that really reflects what we were just talking about, Commissioner, and I myself have definitely seen a fair share of that. So do you want to respond to what Melissa just said? No, Melissa's right. Um, so I think we saw it really uptick beginning in 2020 when when March and April of 2020, um, we had many people staying home. Our roadways were wide open and I was going to work every day and I saw um, how fast people were traveling and that behavior has not stopped. Those speeds are continuing, even though the traffic has returned. So those weaving in and out, um, it's really it's self, uh, selfish and reckless of those drivers to put other people at risk like that. And I know it seems like we're doing kind of going on our own roundabout here in this conversation, um, but wrong way driving is also very much on the forefront of our minds. You know, what do these solutions look like, if you have any, and how soon will they be implemented? Yep. So um, the legislature and the governor actually gave us funds um, a little over a year ago to begin to invest in some wrong-way driver alert systems where we will install them at uh, a bunch of uh, on and off ramps and they will flash uh, lights at an individual if it detects you driving up the ramp the wrong way. Um, so we began that process and uh, we looked at over 700 ramps that we thought might be dangerous based on how they're aligned how the um, their location to bars and restaurants. Um, and we've identified 120 that we're going to go install this technology. It'll flash at you um, some in-pavement markers that will look red if you're going the wrong way. 
Um, and you know, even if that saves one life, it's it's worth it. Uh, but when you look at the data of who has caused these wrong-way driving crashes, uh, of the 13 crashes in 2022, the 23 fatalities, um, all of them except for two involved drunk drivers. And then about half of them also had drugs in their system. Um, but all of them except for two were drunk drivers. So I know we started the conversation on potentially lowering the blood alcohol limit. So do you have any concerns on how to regulate drinking under the influence of marijuana? Because right now, though, there doesn't seem to be any way to really test to see if someone is driving under the influence of marijuana. And you just mentioning that a lot of these cases are under the influence of something. So what are your concerns? And are, is there anything that's moving forward on that front? Yeah. So it starts with education. Um, I think we've, uh, many people um, have heard from uh, people that say, yeah, I drive better when I'm high because, you know, uh, which isn't true. Um, your reaction time is is worse. Um, you, you can't follow moving objects. Um, it's just as dangerous. So first we start with education um, and that's what we've been working on. Uh, the, the second part is training law enforcement. There is no um, ability to do a breathalyzer for someone, right? There's no scientific way to show if they have THC in their system they're impaired because it can stay in your system for a while. So what we do is we have a tool called, um, it's, a, it's a behavioral test, um, and we have trained officers. They're called drug recognition experts. When a law enforcement officer pulls you over for impaired driving, they don't know why you're impaired or how impaired you are. They just know that you are showing signs of impairment. They do their standard field sobriety test, which uh, tests you in the field, essentially doing, you know, walk the line, um, do the alphabet backwards, right? Uh, look at your eyes. Um, and that's how they determine you're impaired. When they take you into custody, that's when they figure out what you are impaired by, what substance you're impaired by. Um, so we are training officers to be able to detect if there's no alcohol in the system. Here's how you can figure out what type of substance. Is it cannabis? Is it fentanyl? Is it prescription drugs? And that's what a drug recognition expert can do. And so I guess following on that, are there plans to credential current officers or are those separate positions or what is that going to look like in the future? So we are credentialing uh, existing officers. We um, trained 14 officers last year. We have about 59 right now in the state. Um, and uh, we also are training every officer in the state as they become a law enforcement officer in something called Advanced Roadside uh, Impairment Detection, uh, or A-RIDE. Um, and that's the highest level of uh, training we can do for individuals um, beyond the next step, which was the DRE program, which is a, a multi-week course. And sort of switching gears, but still really on the same topic is pedestrian safety. Once again, I think we have so many hot topics these days for very good reasons, as we've talked about. We have seen a number of pedestrian deaths in the last couple of years, and this is something that's been happening nationwide and particularly in our state. So what is your office doing to increase pedestrian safety? So I think the most important thing is reducing speeds on the roads where pedestrians are located. If you're a pedestrian and uh, you were hit by a car going 40 miles per hour, um, you have a, a one in ten chance of surviving that crash. Um, you know that's that's a horrific uh, fatal percentage, and we're seeing it continue to get worse the past five to ten years, as our motor vehicles in our fleet across the nation are getting larger, they're getting heavier, their hoods are higher. 
It used to be designed so that if you were hit by a car, this is a terrible th- thing to think about, but if you were hit by a car, you would roll over the hood uh, because there were smaller vehicles. Now you go under the vehicle. Um, and it's horrific to think that, but that's why we need to slow people down. Um, we're in the process. Uh, we've conducted studies to figure out where can we go in the state to do what's called a road diet, where you shrink the size of the lanes, uh, reduce the number of lanes, um, and put in traffic calming measures that will cause people to automatically slow down as they're traveling, um, installing roundabouts, install- installing raised crosswalks, all these types of infrastructure changes that will cause people to slow down. And the other piece is we're pushing for legislation that will allow municipalities to have uh, speed cameras and red light cameras. When speaking of uh, speed limits, we have a call from Mikhail, who's in London, who's actually had to change his route because of speed limits. Mikhail, you're on the line. Yes, thank you for taking my call. Uh, I'm driving down to West Haven, and um, um I'm doing 65 miles an hour, and everyone is is near is passing me, doing much faster. And I hardly ever see any any state troopers out, so I'm getting frustrated with all the stress. So I start taking the well, two of the jewels of Connecticut, uh, the Shoreline East and the Hartford Line, and I just feel that that's you know that's such a wonderful uh, way to travel, and I think that should be expanded and. And when you're going down from New London or New Haven up to, you, you just see the beautiful um, savannas and, and a breathtaking view of Long Island Sound is just remarkable. And I just think that um, something should be done about reducing the speed on the state highways and, and, and exploiting more of the, uh, the commuter trains. Thank you for, for, for taking my call. Well, thank you so much, Mikhail, for taking the time and giving us a call. So, Commissioner, what do you have to say about what Mikhail just shared? No, absolutely right. Um, the speeds are um, out of control out there. I know uh, Connecticut State Police has had significant number uh, uh, reduction in officers on the roads due to retirements. Uh, so they are increasing their troop sizes. Um, they are putting more officers on the road. When you look at the total number of traffic stops and citations issued, um, it has been going up the past few years. Um, I know Commissioner Ravella and uh, Colonel Malikas there at State Police are, are focused on this issue. Um, they can't be everywhere. Uh, so that's where we need to um, do our best to continue to focus on trying to protect users and provide them with alternatives. Uh, like you mentioned, um, we need to provide more alternatives to people to get out of their vehicle. If you don't want to drive, um, let's provide you with bus or rail opportunities uh, to get w- to where you need to go. We'll definitely get into the bus and rail uh, conversation in a little bit, but also want to touch on uh, Jay on Twitter also said, thanks to the commissioner for his leadership on Vision Zero, ending preventable deaths on Connecticut roadways. Enforcement is only part of the solution. How do we change dangerous road designs? 60% of walking and bicycle bicyclist deaths occur nationally on multi-lane high-speed arterials. So what do you have to say about that, commissioner? Yeah, it's true. Uh, So, you know, our roads designed 50, 60 years ago um, were built to get vehicles to where they need to go um, as efficiently as possible. They didn't necessarily take into account um, all the users of the system. Uh, So that's something that we are going to have to go back and uh, undo uh, those designs. And like that's where I mentioned the concept of the road diets, uh, beginning to pare back some of that space. And the intent is not to 
make it more difficult for any drivers to get to where they need to go. In many cases, it actually makes it more efficient for them when you look at total time. They may not uh, go as fast on the road, but the total time spent traveling will actually be less. And it's difficult to wrap your head well, if I'm going slower, how am I getting there faster? Well, it's making some improvements to the road design that makes you not have to stop at some stoplights, not have to wait and queue up behind someone trying to take a turn. Uh, those are the changes that can get you where you need to go more efficiently. And just a reminder for our listeners that you can join the conversation, 888-720-9677, or drop us a comment on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. So, Commissioner, earlier we mentioned a little bit about buses. So can you explain to our listeners why a free bus service has come to an end, and is there any hope of bringing that back for our residents who rely on it? So the Federal Transit Administration has this uh, uh, regulation in place it's, it's rooted in Title VI of the Civil Rights Act that says anytime you adjust a fare of any kind, um, and if it's not going to be just a temporary fare change, you have to do a fare equity analysis. So even if I were to go and try and change the CT Transit fares by a penny, before I made that permanent change, I would have to go do a fare equity analysis. Uh, so when the legislature and the governor provided funds uh, for statewide to do free bus fares. It was intended to be a temporary uh, you know, measure. Um, and when it continued, we crossed that threshold whereby if we wanted to continue it, we would have to go in and do a fair equity analysis. Uh, and you know, so one, we don't have the funds to continue it at this time. But two, we also have to conduct a fair equity analysis to see what does that change in fare policy mean for the users of the system? Um, I'm not going to say there's never an opportunity for it to come back, but when you look at the total cost of running the system, um, for the budget that's before the legislature, that the governor and the legislature are considering right now, the cost to provide the services we enjoy today went up by $26 million. When you add that, in addition to the $42 million in fares that we normally collect, you know, that's $68 million, plus the governor's proposed expanding bus service in the state um, by another $8 million per year. So we're looking at $75, $76 million a year additional funding we would need in order to pay for what we have today, waive all bus fares, and then exp- expand the bus service. And then you look two years from now, when our federal funds, we're still using federal COVID funds to cover the gap uh, in fare box recovery. Um, when those go away two years from now, we're going to have to come up with additional funds at the state level to help pay for service. So it sounds like funding, as usual, is, is pretty much the reason and, and, and also sounds like it's not completely off the table. But can, can you also respond to, to concerns that bus services around Amazon warehouses is being prioritized? Yeah, um, so we are we are proposing adding a few routes that serve Amazon warehouses, but when you look at the t- totality of all the expansion we're proposing, um, we're looking at adding Sunday service in Meriden. We're looking at expanding the hours of operation in Middletown. Uh, we're looking at doing some crosstown routes in Stanford. Um, and yes, some of the in the Waterbury region, there is a new route being proposed that will serve an Amazon warehouse, but it also serves people who don't go to that Amazon warehouse. And you know, we're talking about new businesses coming in that are going to have thousands of employees. Um, if I can break down that barrier to make it easier for them to get to work, not have to own a car, not have to pay for insurance, not have to pay for gas, 
um, and they can just take the bus instead, that puts more money in the po- their pockets um, to spend on their family to put away for education or whatever they need to use the money for. You've been listening to Gary Ucolito. He's Connecticut's DOT commissioner, and he's here to answer your questions about all things transportation. And just a quick note that today is the second day of Public Media Giving Days, held in partnership with NPR, PBS, and member stations across the country. Public Media Giving Days is a celebration of all that public media gives to people everywhere. We won't be breaking into this hour with fundraising because we want to give you an uninterrupted conversation with Commissioner Ucolito. But please, please, please consider supporting where we live and all Connecticut public programming by calling 1-800-584-2788 or go online at ctpublic.org slash donate. Thank you so much. And from Connecticut Public Radio, this is where we live. And I'm Catherine Shen. This is where we live from Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Catherine Shen. We're continuing our conversation on all things transportation with Transportation Commissioner Garrick Yokolito, and we're now moving on to other topics. But first, we're going to take a quick call from Joanna at Mansfield. Joanna, you're on the line. Hey, good morning, Catherine and Commissioner. Thanks for taking the call, um, and I look forward to hearing your your comments. Um, the question I had was, and I posted it on Facebook as well, was in regard to um, someone made a comment earlier about concern about weaving on highways. And so I spend hundreds of miles on the road in Connecticut every month. Um, I have to drive to New York City. And I see what this person is talking about with weaving. However, I also see a lot of people, and I'm sure you've seen this too, um, sitting in the left lane, not passing anybody, in fact, they're probably often going much lower than the speed limit because generally they're doing something else. You know, they're on their phone or, you know, like they're texting or scrolling on their phone or they're talking on a the phone. They're doing something that's not related to driving. Um, and they're forcing then a lot of people who are then fed up with being stuck behind somebody who refuses to pass. They're forcing people to then pass somebody on the right and to appear like they're weaving when they're actually just trying to get to where they're going in a reasonable amount of time. Um, and I understand that pa- not passing the left lane is illegal, but I don't see enforcement. And I'm wondering like, what your thoughts and if there are any plans of trying to address that issue. Um, because I truly feel that if we were a little bit more focused on that, it might alleviate traffic overall on our, our highways in Connecticut. Well, thank you so much for that call, Joanna. And I, in fact, just had that problem this morning. So, Commissioner. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's definitely true. Uh, I think we've all seen that uh, someone camped out in the left lane. I know one of my former coworkers, that was one of his uh, biggest pet peeves, and he wanted to introduce legislation every year to focus on that. Um, it is, uh, the left lane is intended to pass, uh, right? So, um, drivers learn that in driving school uh, or when they get their driver's license and take their test. I think a lot of people forget the basics of driving um, after a little while. But the the problem of doing something else while you're behind the wheel is prevalent. I think we've all seen people uh, texting and driving. Um, and more often than not now, they're on TikTok or Instagram and they're doom scrolling. Um, I've seen some people 
have their uh, phone mounted watching TikTok videos while they're driving, um, and which is not the intent of the, having the phones mounted, right? It's for the, getting you uh, directions to where you need to go. So that is a huge concern. Um, we do our part by partnering with law enforcement to get distracted driving uh, grants out there for them to do uh, enforcement. But um, right now, it doesn't seem like there's any technology to stop that other than preventing anyone from using their phone while they're traveling at certain speeds, which then becomes a public safety issue in itself. So um, it's a huge issue um, and another case where people need to focus on the road while they're driving um, and go back to the basics of how to drive. I actually just had someone tell me something similar to what you just shared, people watching YouTube on their phones while driving. It just blew my mind because I like to multitask, but not like that, though. (laughs) So, And I want to get to a question from another one of our listeners who said that often advocates are told by local decision makers that they can't do anything to make a road safer because it's a state road. So how are you breaking down these barriers under your administration, Commissioner? So more often than not, that's... um partially true, right? Where a state road, they'll need permission from the state before they make any changes. Um, But we're not going to turn anyone away. If someone comes to us with a safety issue, we're going to sit there and try to figure out how to make it safer. Um, And that's uh, our open door policy for municipalities um, and for constituents um, of those municipalities. Um, We created a new unit Um, an intergovernmental unit focused on municipal relations and regional council government relations um, who are going to work to help uh, better those relations so we can find solutions. I just went over uh, last week or two weeks ago, sat down for an hour with the mayor of Bristol, and we rolled out some maps. We started looking at some of the traffic issues that he wants to solve to improve safety in his community. Um, Done the same same thing in New Britain. Um, So we partner with municipalities all the time to try and address our state roads that come through those communities. Um, We want to improve safety. Our engineers, that's their top priority as well. Uh, So, um, you know, we want to have those conversations. And want to jump to sustainability for for a quick bit. You know, the EPA has proposed vehicle emission standards that were explicitly designed to push car manufacturers to electric vehicle production. So how will Connecticut manage that change? and, And are there changes that we're already seeing? So we do have some federal funds to help build out electric vehicle charging stations across the state. Um, It's called the NEVI program, National Electric Vehicle Infrastructure Program. Um, It's coming to the DOT. um, And the intent from the Federal Highway Administration is to build out those fast chargers where you can get from a 10% charge to an 80% charge in 15 to 20 minutes. So we will be um, issuing an RFP to get the private sector involved to build those out. we know that's the biggest barrier to people transitioning over to an electric vehicle is they don't want to feel like they're going to be stranded somewhere. And while the majority of people in Connecticut do will ultimately have a, essentially a gas station in their home, right, where they can just plug in at home, um, there are a large number of individuals who oftentimes live in the communities most overburdened by air pollution who don't have that option. Either they park on the street or they don't have a driveway or a garage. Um, so we need to make sure that all residents are served by that transition. Um, so w- we at the DOT, we're trying to lead by example. We're transitioning our fleet over wherever possible. Um, we have around 20 vehicles so far in our fleet that are electric. Um, and then we're trying to look at other ways. So we have crash attenuator trucks on the road that sit and idle to protect our, dr- our, our workers. They're essentially 
intended for a vehicle to crash into it to protect our drivers. Uh, so instead of hanging them idle with uh, gas or diesel, we're now converting them over to be electric battery based um, so they don't emit, emit any emissions. And so as we, as there's a lot of encouragement to, to start um, buying more electric vehicles and whatnot. And, and of course, that, as you guys touched on a little bit earlier, that does change sort of the, the charging infrastructure on state roads. And we've had a lot of questions from, from a lot of people talking about, you know, like, there are charging stations, but it's not enough. And some places you have to pay for it and all that jazz. So what are what is your office doing in terms of sort of starting to get that infrastructure going or what is already happening? Yeah, so we're working with uh, Commissioner Dykes at um, uh, Department of Energy and Environmental Protection, um, as well as the chairman of the Public Utilities Regulatory, Regulatory Authority, uh, Marissa Gillette. Um, you know, there's two um, hurdles to building out this infrastructure. One is the utilities need to build out additional infrastructure to support the energy that needs to be located on site. Um, and, and they're supportive of that, but it is very costly and time-consuming to do that. And the other part is paying to install the infrastructure. Um, so we are um, going to be partnering with the private sector to do that um, with our competitive RFP to help fund that. Um, we also are looking at, uh, we developed a, a roadmap, essentially, a plan of we went out and looked at where the fast chargers are across the state. We identified where those gaps are. Um, and so we've identified here's where we need to fill in first. And here's the communities that don't have any charging infrastructure. Um, so we're hopeful that the responses we get back from that RFP, where we are going to pay 80% of that cost to install the infrastructure, uh, will hopefully spur uh, some movement there. And so following on that, most electric charging stations are free, um, although the ones at UConn Stores campus are not right now. So can we expect electricity for our cars to be an expense in the future? And if so, do we know how will the prices be regulated? So uh, I think a lot of those level two chargers that can take multiple hours to charge your vehicle are free right now. I think um, uh, we're going to see that transition over to be a, a pay to use. Um, all of the fast chargers, are, you have to pay for them today. So I drive an electric vehicle. Um, when I go charge at an Electrify America station or an EVgo station, I have to I have to pay. And it's a cents per kilowatt hour charge um, based on how much you draw down from that station. Um, so I know Pura, um, uh, Chair Gillette, um, has been working on this issue. Um, and uh, all across the country, uh, all the public service commissions or utility agencies are going to be regulating how the utilities or how the companies that uh, install the charging stations, how they charge people to use those systems. And I uh, want to jump to statewide uh, rail rail system. I'm struggling a little bit there. Um, this plan was submitted to the Federal Railway Administration. Do we have any updates on that? Is it still under review? And what are you hearing from people who want to have a, a rail system? Yep. So um, the Federal Railroad Administration did accept um, and approved our state rail plan. Um, and it's really a, uh, you know, the state rail plan is what we aspire to be. Right. It's how do we aspire to build out our rail system in Connecticut um, if we could wave a wand and do that? Um, and then now that it's been approved, now it comes back to the reality of how do we achieve that? Um, there are capital costs to build out the infrastructure and then there's operational costs to run the system. Um, paying to run and operate a rail system is very expensive. Um, there's labor costs and uh, operational costs tied to energy usage uh, and uh, mechanical 
repairing the equipment. Um, so that's the focus now is how do we address the infrastructure we have? How do we go in and fix the New Haven line, which Connecticut owns from Greenwich to New Haven? How do we pay to repair that system? Um, it's it's very old. A lot of the movable bridges that are on the rail system were built. Um, one of them was built during the McKinley administration. Um, you know, so they're very antiquated bridges. It's going to cost a lot of money to repair. Uh, so that's what we're in the process of doing now. We've applied for federal funds um, through the infrastructure bill to try and draw down as much funding for Connecticut as possible to make those improvements. But then we're also looking at the Hartford line. How can we finish double tracking the Hartford line? And uh, the goal there is to, if Massachusetts can achieve what they want to do, where they want to have east-west rail and go from Springfield to Boston, um, if we can then build in that inland route so we can go from Hartford to Boston. Um, that's the ultimate vision. When speaking of rails, we're going to be taking a call from Dave, who's actually in Ohio, but a Connecticut native, and he has a question about the Shoreline East train. Dave, you're on the air. Hi, Catherine. Thanks for taking my call. What a segue. That was perfect. Uh, I'll just ask a quick question and then hang up and listen. I I'm aware that uh, the new electric cars that were put on, you know, electric uh, trains that were put on the Shoreline East a few months ago uh, are super nice. Um, there were also some problems with how sharp the platform is around New London to get them to fit. But I'm just curious, um, you know, ridership was very low to start. Of course, COVID affected that. But I just wondered how, how are things going uh, in that way with the ridership? And I will hang up. Thanks. Thanks, Dave, for that call. And that segue is all for you. And now, <laughs> Commissioner... No, thanks, Dave. Uh, so Shoreline East um, has struggled since COVID to return ridership. Um, you know, when COVID first hit, we reduced rail service across the board. Um, and then as ridership returned, we continued to increase service incrementally on the New Haven line, on the uh, on the Harford line and Shoreline East. Um, and then on Shoreline East, uh, you know, right now we're running at about 66% service levels compared to pre-COVID. Uh, and when we increased to that service level percentage, ridership never inched up any further. Um, so, uh, you know, the good thing is we were able to move to getting rid of the diesel uh, trains on Shoreline East, replace them with our electric M8 trains, which are a more comfortable ride. Uh, they're more modern. Uh, and so I think passengers do enjoy that. Uh, we do have some struggles on the Shoreline East where we don't own the infrastructure. Amtrak does. Uh, the actual the rail station in New London is a privately owned rail station, um, so neither Amtrak nor uh, Connecticut DOT have any say in that terrain station. But um, other than that, it's uh, it's going pretty well. The conversion over to electric. And can you also tell our listeners how you are examining roadways in Hartford through the Greater Hartford Mobility Project? Yeah, this is going to be a huge uh, game changer for uh, the capital region. So for those who don't know, but who you live in Hartford or, or drive through here, um, you know, there's a viaduct, an elevated highway that passes through um, right, uh, you know, right through the heart of Hartford when we built ID4. Um, it's an aging uh, elevated highway. It needs to come down. It needs to be replaced because it costs us a ton of money to continue to repair it every year. And we just finished a major rehab rehabilitation project. So back 2013, the DOT started the process of looking at how do we replace that? How do we lower the highway? 
um, make it reconnect the the city from when we uh, did the damage in the past. Uh, we realized pretty quickly that we can't do that without addressing I-91 as well. So we hit a pause and in 2019, we launched the Greater Hartford Mobility Study. So we're coming to the end of that study. Um, we're going to hopefully come forward in the next several months by September, October, go public with the results of that study, uh, the concepts and the options that we can move forward with to undo the damage that was done to Hartford back in the 50s and 60s. And sort of on a related note, I got a question from Jay from Hartford, and he's thanking you for your awesome policy of reducing vehicle miles traveled. But what can we do to do more to support uh, transit-oriented development? transit-oriented development. I know you kind of touched on it just now, Commissioner, but anything else that you can do? So um, I think transit-oriented development is critical to our state's future. Um, we invest heavily in the infrastructure, in the rail systems, in the in the fast track system, um, and we pay to run those services. The more people that can live near those services, um, the better it is for us, the better it is for our state, reducing the, the amount of miles they travel in a vehicle, reduce their carbon footprint, reduce the ta- harmful tailpipe emissions, but it also is cost beneficial to them. Uh, you know, it taking off that cost burden of having to own a car is a huge money saver for a family. If you're a family and you have two cars and if you live near transit and you can downsize to only one car, that's still a win, right? So um, we do partner with municipalities to try and encourage TOD. I don't necessarily have funding to help pay for a project, uh, my colleague commissioners do um, through some state funds, but we do partner with them to look at, um, we can bring other agencies to the table, look at holistically around the whole area. Do we need to do sidewalk improvements? Do we need to improve the roadways, install some bike infrastructure to make it safer for people to walk from the new apartment complex to the fast track station or the, the rail station? You've been listening to Connecticut Department of Transportation, Commissioner Garrett Ucolito. Commissioner, thank you so much for spending time with us today and helping us with all these questions. Thank you very much. We'll be back with AAA after the break. You can also join the conversation, 888-720-9677, or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. This is where we live from Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Catherine Shen. You've just heard from Connecticut Department of Transportation Commissioner Garrett Ucolito. He spoke about wrong-way driving, lowering the blood alcohol limit, and what his office is doing to help make roads safer. And here to respond to what the commissioner had to say is Alex Lakey. He's the Managing Director of Public Affairs for AAA. Thanks so much for joining us today, Alec. Thanks for having me. And so you spend this entire hour really listening to the conversation between the commission and I. Do, is there anything that jumped out to you that you'd like to respond to? You know, honestly, I, I think I agree with much everything the commissioner is saying. I, you know, I, I had the opportunity to, to serve on the on the Vision Zero Council last year and continuing this year and or the vision, one of the, some of the subcommittees of that, that council. And I think what we've got to do 
at all levels of government and also in the public is is change our mindset and say that no fatality, no serious injury on the roads is acceptable. And and everyone that has a hand in, in shaping what the road looks like, how people are driving on it, has a responsibility to um, you know change that change their behavior for the better and make sure people are as safe as possible. And speaking of changes, we're not just talking about changing of mindsets, but potentially changing the blood alcohol limit. You know, what are your thoughts about that? Because that's something that has proven to work in in Utah. Do you think that's something that can work here in Connecticut? You know, I I think I agree with uh, the commissioner that at at point oh five, you're impaired. You you shouldn't be on the road. We know it's an uphill battle. We've done surveys about 0.05 or last one was done a couple years ago nationally we found um 56 percent of people supported uh 0.05 bac laws so you know there's that there's definitely divided opinions out there but i think the the message absolutely is you got to make a plan beforehand you before you start drinking before you start consuming marijuana or any other drug you've got to make a plan because what's the first thing that goes when you start drinking is decision making. So you said you have one drink and you say, oh, I'm, I'm okay, I could have one or two more. Uh, and then sooner or later, that turns into three or five more. And you're, you're on the road and you're impaired. So I, I, I agree that, you know, just making a plan in advance and say, hey, if I'm going to go out and have a few drinks, let me get home via transit or take a cab or Lyft or Uber or de- have a designated driver. So uh, I, I think, you know, that that's the message that we want to send is that, you know, you're you're impaired, whether you're at 0.05, uh, whether you consume cannabis or, or taking any other drug. And I know we've been talking about this a lot recently, but in terms of speeding and aggressive driving, you know, is there any strategy of tackling this? You know, we've been uh, advocating for speed cameras on, on city streets and, and town roads for for a while but we want to make sure that it's done in an appropriate way and with a lot of protections for drivers because we've seen it be used inappropriately in other places and used more as a revenue generator than as a genuine safety initiative but i think the the bill that would enact speed cameras in the connecticut legislature now has a lot of good protections you know to say hey all the revenue has to go back into traffic safety we're going to have warning signs. We're going to have a warning period. It's, you know, it's not supposed to be a gotcha. You know, I know that certainly that that bill um, continues to, to be discussed and, and continues to be tweaked. But uh, I think that's a really important method. And I agree that on the on the local roads and on the arterials, we've got to look at infrastructure changes and redesigns for safety. Because I think, look, you know, AAA, we we represent people that drive cars. And our, our members, by and large, drive cars. But I don't think the transportation system right now, you know, not just in Connecticut, across the country, uh, is working particularly well for anyone. You know, if we're designing to say, hey, we've got to get people from A to B as quickly as possible and safety is a, not as much of a priority, that's going to be dangerous for pedestrians and cyclists. And it's also going to be dangerous for motorists. And that's what we've found with a lot of these infrastructure changes is it, you know, it might be pitched as a pedestrian safety initiative or a bicycle safety initiative. But but so often, it also improves the roads in terms of safety for people in cars. And uh, I think that's a you know, really important message to send. 
Well, and then people in cars and also people outside of cars, we got about 30 seconds left, but I do want to ask, you know, are there any realistic ways to improve roads for those who are traveling by foot? Yeah, I, I think what Garrett said about managing speeds is so critical. We found, you know, we've done research that says when you go from 25 to 30 or, or 30 to 35 miles an hour, uh, particularly for pedestrians and cyclists, those small changes make really big differences in the survival rates of people that are hit. So managing those speeds and, and saying, hey, you know, the speed limits are they're there for a reason. They're there to keep people safe. So especially in pedestrian dense areas, uh, you you know, really do try to follow them. And it's not actually that hard. You know, it's it's not actually that hard to to keep to the speed limit in those dense areas. So um, I think that's that's super important. Well, thank you so much. Thank you so much. You've been listening to Alex Lakey. He's the managing director of public affairs for AAA. Thank you so much for your time today. I'm Catherine Shen. And just another quick note that today is the second day of public media giving days. Please uh, give us a, a little help here and consider supporting where we live and all Connecticut public programming by calling 1-800-584-2788 or go online at ctpublic.org slash donate. Thank you very much. Today's show is produced by Tess Terrible and Dylan Reyes. Download where we live anytime on your favorite app. And thank you always for listening.